Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show, as always, is presented by Mercury Mile. Mercury Mile is fusing fashion and function for runners of all abilities, and there's no time, like the present, to upgrade your running wardrobe. Spring is here. Kind of. I'm gonna, I should say that because today I got sunburnt on my lunch run, which was great. Um, however, tomorrow morning it's going to be below freezing real feel here in Rhode Island. So obviously, I'm gonna need two different, vastly different sets of clothes. And that's why I love Mercury Mile so much because they always hook it up with all the best gear. And so many versatile things for me to use for all of my runs. So check them out. MercuryMile.com. Three easy steps. Go in, sign in, update your sizes and preferences, and then they'll send you a box of four to six curated goodies that you will love. And if you don't, you just send them back and you don't have to pay for them. Also, you save 10 bucks by using code RAMBLINGRUNNER10 at checkout. So today... My guest is the legendary American runner, Ryan Hall. So we recorded this episode a couple months ago, actually, uh, in preparation for the launch of his new book. I had the privilege of reading it a few months back. It is absolutely fantastic. It's called Run the Mile You're In, Finding God in Every Step. This, This book is just, it's so good on so many levels. Now, initially... I think for a lot of people, you'll he, you'll see God in the title. And if you're not a religious person, I, I personally am not a religious person. You might say, oh, I'm not sure if this is for me. Believe me, give this book a chance. I mean, if you if you are a religious person, then that language isn't going to be a turnoff for you. In fact, it's probably going to, you know, maybe maybe uh, you know, buoy your buoy your thoughts towards maybe buying the book in the first place. And I'll tell you, as someone who's not a religious person. I loved this book, and I loved this conversation. Hearing Ryan's perspective on so many things really was eye-opening to me. He was very candid in this conversation, which was remarkable considering his stature in the running community and just the fact that we didn't know each other before this conversation. This was literally the first time we'd ever spoken. And he opened up about so many things and it was just one of the most fun conversations I've had in a long time. And it was just a delight to have it with someone who I have personally looked up to as an athlete for so long. So with all of that being said, here's my conversation with the legendary Ryan Hall. Hello, Ryan, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Well, I'll tell you, it was a pleasure, uh, first of all, to get your book in the mail, Run the Mile You're In, from Ryan Hall, the fastest American half marathoner. And I, I love it. It's, it's This is a book that, first of all, I could not wait to read. So I think I got this like a month ago from your publisher, which was awesome. But like I was like, all right, I want to read this now, but I'm going to forget everything <laughs> if I read it a month out. I don't know how you were in school. <laughs> You're a Stanford guy, so maybe you didn't have this issue. But I was like, right, I got to read this now. I'm like, no, no, I got to wait. I can't wait. But I was like, it was, I was so excited to chat. You've been a running hero of mine for a long time. Now you can be like a weightlifting hero of mine as well. So first of all, thanks for doing this and <laughs> thanks for writing the book. Yeah, yeah, it was, you know, I'm really excited to share the book with people. Um, it it was 
very uh therapeutic for me to write it myself like you know i started writing it after i'd already retired from professional running and um it just kind of looking back at everything and and realizing all the important lessons i'd kind of learned throughout my entire running journey um just i could see how it all made sense and how it was it was for me and just for that season but more so it was for other people and to hopefully you know inspire and encourage other people as they're on their own journeys yeah and i love how the book how you set it up there's 26 chapters um which is fantastic all with a different topic and they're obviously you know very interrelated so it flows very well and you you reflect a lot on various points in your career and your life so did you have a habit of writing down your thoughts in the moment or did you have to just spend a lot of time reflecting on various parts of your life prior to writing uh this book yeah i've always enjoyed writing you know and uh i have about like 10 books that i've started on my email um, from years past you know that that never came to fruition but um yeah i just i I love writing but i did with this book in particular it was just kind of all fresh like me waking up at 5 a.m every day having a big cup of coffee and reflecting back on on the biggest lessons i learned and um and you know and figuring out a way to communicate those uh, lessons effectively to other people. Interesting. So why 5 a.m.? I'm intrigued. <laughs> so I, uh, my mantra is nothing can stop me at 5 a.m. And, uh, you know, now I'm a, a four and um, husband, coach, have a lot going on, you know, and I find my days get interrupted very easily and I get distracted very easily. But when I get up at 5 a.m., all those distractions, you know, I'm not getting the texts and um, emails and all that. I can just focus on what I want to accomplish. And also my energy is the best then, you know, if I have coffee. If I don't have coffee, my my, my mind is not awake. But um, I just find that I work really well at that hour. And I can literally, like, I just got up every morning 5 a.m. for I don't know exactly how long, maybe a month, maybe two months, and wrote the entire book. And I just spend an hour to an hour hour and a half um just just writing and pouring my heart out on my computer and of course there was a lot of editing along the way and I had some great editors um who helped me with the book but um there was actually I was intimidated going into writing the book but I actually found it to be much more enjoyable and like I said therapeutic than uh than I would have expected interesting so did you you put you talk a lot about goals in this book. And I can't wait to talk about that because that's something that no matter any runner's current ability that they can always relate to, right? That's something that is a, there's a part of people's lives, whether they're running or not, that, that that's just a major part of people's lives. And sometimes that people struggle with it or how to do it um, or just how to frame it in their own mind. Did you know that you were going to be going up against Meb, not only in your running career, but now in your writing career, you guys are going to be competing books coming out like a month from each other. It's like, you guys just can't <laughs> stop competing. <laughs> <laughs> no it's funny i didn't even know he was writing a book till i think runner's world came out with like books to look forward to in 2019 and mine was on there meb's was on there i was like oh meb's writing a book and i saw his is also like 
lessons from 26 marathons. I don't know if it's 26 chapters or not, but um, no, I was just laughing when I saw that, that he's also writing a book and I was, I'm excited to read his book, you know, like Meb is someone I've looked up to for a long time and we're more like brothers than competitors. So, um, you know, we're, he's, he wrote an endorsement for my book and I would gladly support his book and throw my name behind it too. So, um, it might seem like a competition from the outside, but on the inside between Meb and I, you know, like I know he wants the best for me and, and I definitely want the best for, for him sure. As and well. you talk about competition. I mean, that that's like a whole part of the book as well in terms of how you framed it in your head, maybe early in your career and how you framed it later. And maybe that's even painting too, too much with a, a broad brush because it's, it's hard to kind of just stay, stay of one mind when trying to consider other people and you're a competitive person. So how did that change over time? Just your relationship to competition versus others and staying within yourself. Yeah, when I was writing the book, I was almost laughing at myself when I was writing the chapter on on competition and comparison in particular, um, because I grew up just like so, so competitive as middle five kids and, you know, middle kid syndrome like you want to stick out and get the attention of your parents and that was very much like the case for me even though like I had amazing parents and all of us kids were well loved but there's still like this thing inside of me that just wants to like pop and stick out and get attention you know (laughs) and so um, sports was kind of my way to do that and then you know within sports I was just extremely competitive to the point to where I'd be 12 year old 12 years old playing baseball in little league and if I struck out, I would start crying afterwards. Like that's just the kind of pressure I put on myself and how badly like I wanted to thrive and do well in sports. Um, So, you know, I was writing from a place of like, man, this is where I came from. Like where it's just all about like how good I was relative to everyone else is all about comparison. So when you look at like, what does it mean to be competitive? Usually it means like you're trying to beat other people, which in the end like is, comes down to comparison um but i kind of found through my own personal experience anyways that that wasn't the most fulfilling way for me to do sports i found that um number one it was never enough if i beat people i just wanted to like beat the next level person who was still better than me you know my eyes was always going to like okay who's next um and then when I didn't beat them, like, I felt really bad about myself, you know? So I just found it to be, like, deeply unfulfilling way to do sports. And uh, I felt like God just kind of taught me on my journey about how to do it a better way. And that better way is just, like, going after personal excellence. And I think that's one of the things I'm most proud about in my career was things like the 2011 Boston Marathon where – I run faster than anyone's run in over 120 years on the Boston Marathon course and yet finished fourth place. And, you know, you would think that I'd be bummed about that. But if you look at pictures of me coming across the finish line, you'll see that I was just so stoked, you know, because it wasn't about winning the race as much as it was about, like, me seeing how good I could be and even pushing, like, the guys around me to get more out of them than they think they could get out of themselves. So it was just kind of a, a big heart shift that happened throughout my career that made sports just so much more fun and satisfying to do. Yeah, I hear what you're saying, because that makes a lot of sense. And, and Ron, I can't wait to talk more about that month, that New York City half leading into Boston, which is which is a great, it could like be a book in and of itself, is like that season of running for you, because it had such highs, not highs and lows necessarily, but kind of 
swings of the pendulum, I guess, might be a better expression. But when you have that kind of internal versus external competition, um, you know, thing going on, it's it seems like it's something that's kind of like easier said than done in a way, especially if you're competing with people that you have in the past. So say if like the goal is personal excellence and all of a sudden somebody who you've beaten in the past then beats you, wouldn't it be easy to say at that same time, like, hey, like, I'm not living up to my own personal excellence. I know that because I beat Dathan last time we ran and now he just beat me. Like, how how hard was it for you to kind of live that mantra in those moments? Oh, yeah. I mean, the reason why it is like a mantra is because you have to tell yourself it all the time (laughs) over and over again. You know, it wasn't like I magically clicked at one point in my career. It's like it's a mantra. It's something that I have to remind myself of all the time, because really what you're trying to change is is a a mindset and a culture within yourself of like, okay, I'm not going to be as focused. I'm not going to like, I'd catch myself because that kind of thing would happen to me where like I'd finish whatever place in a race and be like, man, I should have beat that person. And I'd just use that as like kind of a way to trigger myself and be like, hold on a second. Like, is that what it's about? And then just kind of like bring myself back to where I wanted to be. And, uh, you know, I, I, I still haven't like completely mastered it, but I know like when I'm at my best, that's, my mindset and that's the culture inside me um so it's something that is i continue to strive for and continue to go after and continue to remind myself and it's also super super helpful if you have people around you who have that same mindset and they are reminding you when you start comparing yourself to other people they're like hey it's not about that right like and it makes you be like oh yeah 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 thanks like you kind of brought me back to where i want to be um so it's a it's a continual process a daily daily renewing of the mind. that's a great way of putting it and i'm saying thank you for for phrasing it like that and i, I think there's also there's one thing when you compare yourself to other people and you can you can you know in, intellectually say like hey man like it's not about them you know like you can only be the best version of you and that can be an easy thing to fall back on I have found in my own personal experiences in, in sports and no matter what sports they are, is that the harder comparison to shake is comparing myself to faster or more successful versions of myself is that that's, that's the comparison right. that kind of can cut the deepest in those moments where I'm not necessarily at my best or just emotionally, if I'm not kind of on my game, have you ever struggled with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. All the time. And that's, that would probably be the one I struggle with the most as well. Um, whether it's like now in the weight room or when I was running, always comparing previous workouts to previous workouts and previous races to, you know, and I remember I kind of fall back on something that I learned from a, a sports psychologist that Stanford actually brought in at a preseason camp before cross country season. And I remember him talking about like, the only thing you can control is getting hundred percent out of your body on today. Like that's the only thing you can control. So like the goal has to be about just maximizing your potential on the day. And then like, if you PR, that's great. But like, you got to realize, like, especially as you get faster and faster, like those PRs are going to be harder and harder to come by. And you might get to a point where you, 
certainly will get to a point where you start slowing down, you know, but you can still like accomplish that goal of just setting your mind to being like, I'm going to get a hundred percent out of whatever I have today. And that's the only thing I can be assured of. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's funny. I, I heard you in another interview say that you know, there's when people ask you what you do for a living, you kind of half joke that I'm a professional pain manager. So I love that. I love that expression. <laughs> and it's funny because it also, I feel like it relates to this topic as well in terms of comparing yourself to yourself, especially not from, not necessarily from a race perspective, but those moments where you're doing a workout where there's that fine line in a race, you just go for it. Right. Um, especially if it's that a race, that goal race, but that in that workout where, you have, say, a, a, a coach sets out a, a workout for you that they feel like is maybe a, you know, something that you can definitely do, but you have to work hard for. But in those moments, finding the difference between this is all I have versus am I just not giving as much as I should or am I just not tolerating discomfort as much as I should? How have you navigated that fine line? Yeah, when you when you asked the question, it reminded me a lot about the chapter that I wrote about uh, mental toughness, you know, because so much of managing pain is like using your mind to manage that pain. Your body is obviously sending you all these signals that you need to slow down, that you're going to die if you keep going. Like those are the kind of that's the feedback you're getting from the body. And then it's your mind that's kind of battling against those uh, sensations that your body's sending you. So um, it really becomes a mental game as anyone who's run for any amount of time knows, like it's, it's a mental battle out there. And uh, when I wrote the chapter about mental toughness, um, one of the things I talked about was, um, the, the kind of beginning of getting mentally tough is to believe that you are mentally tough. And I know that seems like circular logic and it is circular logic, logic, but um, it really is true though. Like I see it all the time with athletes I coach currently that if they question their mental ability, it really, um, it snowballs, you know, and then they just start thinking worse and worse. They start struggling even more and they, they just lose this belief of themselves that, Hey, I am mentally tough. And you got to start with that belief. You got to believe I am mentally tough. And so, you know, if coaches are listening to this and, you know, speaking to myself here also as a coach, I think, you know, one of the biggest disservices to athletes we can do is right after they finish a hard race, be question their mental capacity and, and abilities and to make them doubt themselves mentally that's just going to make things worse and worse I think as a coach we do have a responsibility to address the mental side and obviously like we need to train our minds like I'm not saying like you just believe that you're mentally strong and then just never even address the mental aspect again that's not it at all but it's just like we have to build from this fun foundational belief that I am mentally strong and then from that we further refine the mind to you know whether it's telling yourself mantras while you're out there um, you just got to find ways to encourage yourself and even at times to be honest like when I'm 23 miles deep into the Boston Marathon and everything in my body is literally screaming at me to stop or slow down sometimes I just have to turn the mind completely off and like people would ask what do you think the most and sometimes you know it's different every time but um, oftentimes I wasn't thinking about anything I was just trying to put one foot in front of the other as fast as I could 
And I remember hearing an interview from Michael Phelps where he was kind of talking about the same thing. People were asking him, what do you think about like when you're swimming in the Olympic games? And his response was like, I'm just think I'm just in the moment, just thinking about what I'm doing right now. I'm not like overanalyzing things. And I found that to be really interesting, you know, cause I think it's really easy to just like think that you have to have some magical thought life to get the most out of yourself. But I think sometimes we got to just turn our minds off even. Yeah, I was just listening to an interview with Colin O'Grady, who walked across Antarctica unassisted. So he was basically pulling a 375-pound sled across Antarctica. The beginning of that is a 9,000-foot incline. (laughs) So think about that. So you're a power lifter. Like, you can imagine, right? So you're like... If like, like you had to draw someone up, like who would might be willing to do that and potentially have like the wherewithal to make it happen. Like it would be someone like you, right? You're like a former endurance athlete, now a 400 pound deadlifter. And like, it was like this insane thing. So someone asked him the same question and he was basically, you know, had gotten so good at getting into flow that that was kind of his right. thing. But basically it was like, you can't, you can't look ahead. That's exactly it. It's like I tell people my least favorite place to be was on the starting line of a marathon because oftentimes my mind would be wandering to mile 23, mile 24, and I would just be a sense of like being overwhelmed. You know, how am I ever going to do this? Even though I trained like a maniac for it, you know, but it didn't change anything. There was still this like fear of the miles to come. So I had to constantly tell myself like, rein it in, come back to what I'm doing right now, just do a great job with the mile that I'm in right now. And that really helped me, you know, get through a lot of those tough moments. And um, on that line of thinking, I remember prior to running the world marathon challenge, which is seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. And uh, I remember feeling kind of overwhelmed by that challenge, you know, because I did that one, I didn't train for it hardly at all. Like my longest run was eight miles. I was into powerlifting and I wasn't into running at all, you know, when I signed up for it and I kind of started to train for it and I started feeling really fatigued again. I was like, you know what, like I'd rather enjoy my life and have one really tough week of running than, uh, you know, have a very tough six months of training and then have a better week of running. So that was kind of my, my mindset going into it. But, um, the reason why I brought up that story, cause I remember feeling like intimidated by how far I had to go. And, uh, luckily like, uh, iron cowboy, I think is the name of the book, uh, that was sent to me about the guy who did 50 Ironman triathlons in 50 yeah. States in 50 days. And that just like blew my mind. And I remember one of the things he said in his book, was like I just refused to believe that I couldn't take one more step and that's how we got through that entire 50-day challenge you know and I think we got to just kind of have that same mindset with stuff that we're trying to take on in our own lives whether it's running or something else um, where we're just like I refuse to believe I cannot take one more step I know I can take one more and then take that step and then just keep with that mindset you know yeah and I love the I love the juxtaposition of the title of your book with your start to running. So if you wouldn't mind just telling the people who are listening about that bus ride. So I used to hate running when I was growing up. Like my goal was to play professional baseball. Um, I was around running. I was exposed to it. My dad had run some marathons and he'd run like five K's on the road. And my sister ran a little bit of track before I came through. 
So, you know, I was, I was around it, but I had zero desire to run. And whenever I had to run the mile in PE, I would run it as hard as I could and run fairly fast for not training, you know, but I hated it. Like I wasn't, I wasn't into it at all. Um, and then that all kind of shifted one day I was driving down to a basketball game in eighth grade and, uh, winter time. And I remember looking out over the lake and it's 15 miles around the lake in big bear and just kind of, I felt like God kind of just planted this like seedling of a desire to try and run around the lake. And, uh, which I felt was very odd because I had zero desire to run at all. Um, but there was something about that moment where it just kind of captured me. And so I went home, I told my dad about what I wanted to do. And I was super grateful that he didn't just gun me down, you know, like I would gun down my kids most likely if they came to me and they're like, Hey, I've never run before. I want to try and run 15 miles. Um, but my dad didn't do that. He was just like, all right, well, if that's what you feel like you want to do, like, let's go do it together. So we went out the next Saturday and went on a very long, very slow, super painful (laughs) jog around the lake. And, uh, I remember coming back from that, stumbling through my front door, just like exhausted and, uh, collapsing on the couch. And I, that time I felt like God was telling me like, he'd give me a gift to run with the best guys in the world but he gave me that gift so I could help other people and so that kind of kicked off you know my entire journey and I'm so grateful that I had that original vision and you know I've talked a little bit about belief like I believed I was gonna be world class from that moment so then I trained that way like I saw myself that way I was disciplined that way because that's essentially like who I was from that moment forward, you know? So it just totally shifted everything inside me. And I went from a kid who hated to run to a kid who was like begging my dad to let me train more because he was my coach in high school and uh, just training like an animal as hard as I, as my dad would let me as hard as was smart. Yeah. You mean you just became a person on fire. You know, you, you basically had these two moments, right? You had the moment on the bus, which you wrote about really well. And I know you, you give a lot of credit to your editors, but you really captured it on the bus of like, you know, you know what those bus rides were right. like. You know, it's like 12, 13-year-old kids are going nuts on a bus. Like, Lord knows what's happening. You just <laughs> It's amazing that the bus driver doesn't like careen off the road <laughs> when they have like that sort of thing going on. And you just like zoned out and you have this experience. And then you have that post-run vision of your future. And I to touch on the first one, I think it's later in the book, you're, you talk to a gentleman, and pardon, I don't know if he was a pastor or just someone who you had experienced, yeah. you had uh-huh. faith-based conversations with, Carl Richardson, I think is his name. I kind of hijacked the whole, you know, going back to what I was talking about with the mental toughness and like believing that you're mentally tough is the first step to actually acting mentally tough. And I kind of hijacked that from Carl, who he was our... Uh, our pastor of our uh, revival group, Sarah and I like audited um, BSSM. It's like Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. We did this um, when we were still running professionally. It's right before the 2012 Olympic trials. And uh, Carl was our, our pastor of our small group. And he was the one who told me, because I was asking him, like, as I, actually the question I was asking him is, how do I know I'm hearing God? Because I went out on this whole journey of you know leaving the Mammoth Track Club, doing faith-based coaching. And I was kind of just like fumbling through, like trying to hear God's voice. And so I was super curious to just be like, how do I know for sure? And th- his response to me was that he's like, the way to know you're hearing God is to believe you're hearing God. <laughs> and, and he went on to explain that further, you know, he didn't just leave it there. Cause obviously like, 
I made a ton of mistakes in trying to hear God's voice, but I kind of got to the point to where I was okay with that. Because when you think about like a kid, for example, trying to learn and trying to learn their first language, um, you know, they're babbling for who knows how long I never had an infant. So I can't, I can't speak to that, but a year, two years, whatever, where they're just making noises and fumbling through it. And then pretty soon it clicks and they begin to get it, you know, and it's the same thing. Like on my faith journey, trying to hear God's voice, um, it, it's, I've learned that it's okay to mess up and it's okay to have failure. And I write about failure, you know, quite a bit in the book and, and how, how actually it serves you well to fail a lot. So, um, yeah, I kind of, kind of turned that what Carl told me about hearing God's voice. And I was like, this is actually true in a lot of areas of life, including like being mentally tough out running. So, um, I kind of transferred it to, to that area. Yeah. And that vision that you had of you running with the best in the world, which I think is how you phrased it in the book, because you competing with the best runners right. in the world. It wasn't like I win a silver medal or something like that. It was just that you were up there with them competing as one of them. What about that moment was such like a holy cow, life-changing type thing? Because I think we've all had those experiences where whether we like, you know, whether it was, it's kind of like happened to us or we willingly think about ourselves in the future. I think very few of us have had that holy cow moment where it all of a sudden it, it alters the trajectory of our life and is a paradigm shifting moment. What about that? Do you think just lit that spark and fire? I learned what I was created to do. And I think that's, you know, something that's super powerful for people to experience for themselves. And, and it's something that changes, you know, I wasn't created to run for my entire life, but for that season of my life, like I was made to run and see how fast I could get, you know? Um, so it was just that, that moment for me where I was like, I was, I was made for this. And when you know you're made for something, it's really easy to go all in with it. And you're just filled with like love and passion. And the discipline actually flows from your love for pursuing this, this, this talent that you have in trying to cultivate it, trying to nurture it, letting it grow. Um, it all, it all flows from that space of being so passionate, so filled with love for what you're doing. And then actually the discipline is, is a fairly easy component to have. Right. Except getting to that level isn't easy, right? It's not like you had this, this vision and it wasn't like, all right, this is who God made me to be in this season <laughs> of my life. And boom, I'm an elite now. Like no, no effort required. I'm just living my best life. Like you, as you mentioned, you talk about failure over and over again in this book, which is a little ironic right. for someone who is writing this book because of all they've achieved. And it was like, how did that work for you when you, you know, would have those introspective moments of like, I know that this is the goal. I know this is something that I can do, that this is a part of God's plan. <laughs> I certainly felt that way. I, I can't tell you how many times I quit running before I actually quit running, you know, where you just have like a really bad race or a really bad workout, or you're going through injuries or whatever. And you're just like, I'm, you know, what? I'm just done with this. But like, literally, I just always fall back on like that original vision God had given me. And I was like, if I have not 
live this, then I'm, I got to keep pursuing it, you know? Um, but it, it is very difficult sometimes because there, there are so many more failures. And I think where I kind of got off track throughout my career was when I would compare how my progress compared to someone else's. So for example, when I was in high school, like I really looked up to Jim Ryan and I wrote about him in the book a little bit. Um, and so I wanted to follow his exact, you know, steps of progression that he had when he was in high school. And when I didn't do that, like my sophomore year in high school, I ran like 422 for 1600. And I think Jim ran like 409 or something. So like, I was all upset about it, but like I was totally off course and like everything was going wrong, you know, but it was simply because like, I was comparing my progress to his. And what I learned is like, we all progress in our own way in our own time. And you never know when you're going to take a big leap. And also you never know when, you know, you might encounter an injury and, and step backwards for a little bit. But I think as long as you're like, consistently um, training smart and well and hard for something like you will see the progress eventually but you got to realize and I wish my 13 year old self knew this like you're gonna it's not gonna be linear it's gonna be up for a little bit and then you're gonna have your hard times and those hard times might last a number of years and you gotta be willing to endure those so that you can keep progressing and when you're experiencing those hard times because when you're pursuing something you know, big, um, they're always going to be there. There's, there. there's going to be stumbling blocks. And if there are stumbling blocks, then, you know, then, then there's nothing to learn from in a sense. But how do you, how would you recommend, so you're a coach, you know, and you're a father of four now, when you talk, you're talking to other people about those stumbling blocks or learning experiences or challenges or however you want to phrase it, how do you talk to them about, why it's important to persevere you know that's very much my story when i was 13 and starting to run i remember doing hill sprints out in the snow one day and like wondering like what does it take to become an olympian and then now like being on the other side of that i see it just took getting back up over and over and over again and it kind of goes back to like one of my favorite uh, verses in the bible says though a righteous man falls seven times he rises again and that's a really interesting verse when you kind of dig deep into it because Number one, like you don't think of righteous people as falling, right? Like isn't the fact that they're righteous because they don't fall, you know, but um, I don't think that's the point of the verse. You know, it's talking about, yeah, righteous people mess up like we all mess up and we fall. But it's that belief that like the belief in yourself that you are righteous in this situation that allows you to get back up. So I always tell people like it comes back at least for me on my journey, it was, it was an issue of identity that I had to work really hard to sort out. And I wrote about this in my book was about going through that hard time at Stanford where I actually dropped out of school for uh, my sophomore uh, year, the winter quarter of my sophomore year and just like really struggling with depression because everything was going bad. My academics were going bad. My racing was going bad. I was like sick and injured and had poison oak like all at the same time. Like it, my world was just kind of crumbling down. And when I woke up in the morning, looked in the mirror, I didn't like what I saw because I was judging myself based on my performances. And that's such a dangerous place to be, I think, for, for myself, for sure. And I would think for anyone, like, it's just a very dark place to be. So I had to pull back from that and ask God, like, how does he see me? And then try to see myself the same way that God sees me. And as I was, you know, able to slowly sort through that and work through that and 
begin to shift how I saw myself and realize that actually like I'm not defined by my performances. Um, it just freed me up to take big risks to, um, you know, not have to prove anything. It just kind of like, felt like I was carrying around a lot of weights before that. Um, and it just kind of unloaded all of that and just freed me up to, um, I think reach my potential. Now, how did you lean on your girlfriend at the time? Who's now your wife, Sarah Hall, um, anyone who's listening to this knows who she is, but, you know, one of the best um, female runners in the world um, for basically a generation now. Um, how did you lean on her during those times since, you know, she obviously had experienced a level of athletic success that you had also experienced? Like you were peers. Because, like I said, everything in my life was going poorly except for her. <laughs> she was like, like the thing I looked forward to when I'd get up in the morning and the thing that was going well, you know, and the person that, um, you know, I had my family, obviously that I was talking to a lot over the phone and they were helping me a lot to work through some of these issues, but, um, having someone in person like Sarah that could just really like hear my heart, understand my heart and encourage me to keep moving forward was, was such a blessing. It was like a total godsend angel, like I wouldn't have gotten through that season of life without someone like Sarah. So, you know, I don't think we're meant to go through our hard times by ourselves. And I think that's when um, bad things happen is when people get really, really isolated. And I know like I tend to isolate myself when I'm struggling or in pain, like, um, but I have found that like, I need people around me to pull, pull me out of it. Right. And it's like, those are the moments that we need other people the most, but there's also right. the moments that we're probably least likely to share because there's kind of, even though the other person might not think of it this way, oftentimes it's easily, easily to internalize those, you know, perceived failures into like a level of shame, which is almost can be like this deadly virus from an emotional standpoint. I think it's so important to have people that you're really close with and that you can be vulnerable with and, and, and kind of force yourself to, to be vulnerable and real with people. One thing that it seemed like it was, I would, you know, you don't, you talk about it in the book, but it's definitely not something that you extrapolate out is first of all, the, the Boston marathon where you crush it, I think it was two or four fifty eight. Right. As you mentioned before, it was like one of the fastest Boston marathons ever. And the, the, I feel like the part of that story that's like the best, and maybe it's just like the, my fan of an underdog in a way, is that a month prior to that, you ran the New York City half marathon. You were coming off a stretch of training that was going really, really well. And you had high hopes for that New York City half. And, and you know, at that point, you were a running veteran. You had every reason to have high hopes so what was that experience like it could it could have really gone the other way like very easily um so yeah like you said I was in really good shape feeling amazing and my expectations were super high and that's one thing I kind of learned through that experience is like to actually manage my expectations um I remember my coach Terrence was always telling me um to expect nothing and be ready for everything and that's a really healthy mindset to have on the starting line because like for me on the starting line New York City Marathon I'm expecting to like go after my American record like 
because my training's been going that way. So then when I run the first mile and I don't remember what my first mile split was, but it was definitely slower than that, than the pace I needed to run to, to hit a personal record and hit an American record. Then like, it kind of starts this like being like, Oh, what's wrong? Why am I running so slow? Why does this feel so hard? It just kind of starts this like negative mindset. Whereas if I'm on the starting line, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go run hard. I'm ready for, you know, whatever everyone else is going to throw at me. I know I'm going to go and run hard and, well, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. Then you come through that first mile and 442 or whatever, and you don't freak out about it. Cause you're just like, well, that's what it is for today. And I'm rolling with it. But you know, I didn't have that mindset on the starting line. So I got myself disappointed really early on in the race and just totally came unglued, had a really bad race and I couldn't really figure it out. I mean, uh, talking about, you know, having expectations, I think that was kind of more hindsight now being through that. I can see that. Uh, But at the time I had no idea why it went so bad. And um, yeah, it was, it was a really frustrating run for me. And, you know, I could, like I said, I could have just gotten really upset about it and just been on the starting line at Boston and be really rattled mentally because I'm coming off this terrible race. Um, but I've, I've learned to, the best way for me to um, get through hard times is to keep moving forward and to focus on, you know, what I'm doing right now, like the title of my book. So when I was on the starting line in Boston, like I was as optimistic as ever. And it did take a while for me to get my optimism back. You know, it wasn't like the next day after the New York City half, I woke up in the morning. I was like, you know what? That's fine. I'm going to be good. It, it, it took, you know, I was hurt. <laughs> I was hurt emotionally and mentally, you know. And so it took a, a good couple of weeks for me to get through that. Um, one thing that helped me with that is something about that bad race seemed to really turn my legs on and I just started feeling amazing. Like training had already been going well, but it took off after that race and got exceptional, like way better than I'd ever experienced before. And I started feeling like amazing. Like it'd be very difficult for me to go out and run an easy run slower than like 545 pace at sea level. Um, it's just like, I just had to be turning it over because my body just wanted to go. So, you know, having that physical part of it helps a lot with the mental and there's, you know, certainly a really strong connection between the mind and body and they both influence each other. Um, but all that to say on the starting line in Boston, like I was just as optimistic as before the New York city half. And, um, just so excited when we had that tailwind, cause I'd run Boston twice before and always just had like a little bit of a pesky crosswind or, um, just never like that perfect day. And I remember talking to Bill Rogers and he was telling me and once every 10 years, we get a wicked tailwind. You can run super fast on this course. And, uh, so when I was on the starting line, I saw the flag just going the exact direction we're running. I was like, I'm not letting one mile go by without without pushing. I think that that's the great juxtaposition of the book of run the mile you're in. And then also to the point of like you having this vision right from the start of being an elite runner and then that being the driving force. And it's so funny, the interplay between the two of like how how must have been difficult for you at moments to really embrace the run mile you're run the mile you're in ethos when you have right, this yeah, zoomed out vision of what you're going what, what you're going for today but you know what i learned along the way and is similar to like i think it's malcolm gladwell when he talks about having ten thousand hours to get great at anything and yeah maybe there's you know a few exceptions where people come into it a little bit quicker than that but 
I think it's really true. It's like it takes consistency and patience, a ton of it, if you're going to maximize your own potential. And just knowing that, like, I am going to get there, but it doesn't have to happen today. And I'm okay if it doesn't happen today. And that's where I, where I would love to end. First of all, thank you for, for coming on. You've been so patient. I really appreciate it and generous with your time. Is that when you were younger, you and your father would literally write your goals in cement. But reflecting back on it now, I think what was most powerful about it wasn't necessarily the times. Cause I'd just write the mile times I wanted to run um, for that year. But it was more like like the commitment behind it and my dad and I committing to pursuing this goal with everything we had that was really powerful about writing our goals in cement. Uh, but my goals definitely did evolve and change through like disappointments with not reaching my goal and realizing that sometimes no matter how hard I train, no matter how much I believe it's just not in the cards and my body can't do it. You know, it's like, like the goal to win Olympic gold medal. Like this has always kind of bothered me that, you know, as a kid, you want to be able to tell your kid, and I heard this many times, like if you believe with everything inside of you and you're disciplined, you're trained, you train, you're smart uh, with recovery, like you can achieve your goal. You can win the Olympic gold medal. But the truth of the matter is like, that's just not true. Like there's only one person that gets to experience that, you know, and how many kids have that exact same dream. So I kind of learned that like, okay, I need, I want to have goals that I know I can accomplish. that I know I can be successful at. If I'm going to throw my entire being into the pursuit of this goal, I want to know I can do it. And so what I learned is like, uh, it was more powerful for me to go after goals of the heart. And this is like very philosophical, you know, but like I could always, for example, if I had the goal on the starting line of like, I'm going to run with thankfulness and every single mile I come through, I'm going to look at my split and I'm just be like, thank you. Thank you that I just ran the mile that fast. Like, I'm so grateful that I'm at this point in the race at this time, you know, and I'm so grateful, you know, just like cultivating thankfulness the whole time. It's like, I can guarantee you that I can do that like every single time out it doesn't matter how my body's performing so i found it to be like a really fulfilling way to do sports to have like these goal i call them like goals of the heart you know and choose whatever you want to go after on the day and it, for me it changed all the time you know maybe it was like today i want to focus on like loving my competitors and i would just be like trying to encourage people while I'm out there. Um, so, you know, you could choose whatever thing you're passionate about, but I just really loved having those goals. That I knew on the starting lines, like I know I can accomplish this. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the rambling runner podcast. I cannot thank you enough. As I said in the intro, this was one of the best conversations I've had in a long time. And to do it with one of my running heroes, I mean, it was just a dream come true. It's really what it was. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks again to Mercury Mile for being the presenting sponsor of the Rambling Runner podcast. You guys always hooking up, and I could not be more thankful. If you haven't checked them out, go do it. There's nothing to lose. MercuryMile.com. You keep what you love. You send back what you don't. It's sent to your home. You don't even have to leave the house, and it's all great great stuff the highest quality stuff out there thank you so much for listening sharing rating reviewing the show all things that you've done for the show i cannot be more appreciative and let me just say this it's marathon monday i'm recording this just after the boston marathon it's just the best running day of the year for so many i didn't run the boston marathon i never have in fact but it was just a wonderful day 
and I could not be more happy to end it by putting out an episode with one of my running heroes. So thanks again for everybody for listening. I really appreciate it and happy running.